0: Hi, I'm Jason Sachs, and welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. My guest today is Stuart Moore, longtime comics writer and editor. In the coming hour, we discusses Ahoy Comics, Bronze Age Boogie, and Captain Ginger, as well as his love for 1970s-style comics, his transition from the book press into comics, the prehistory and birth of Vertigo Comics, The Birth of the Invisibles and Preacher, Steve Gerber's Howard the Duck. Stewart's own writing, including his series through Penny Farthing Press and his Marvel novels, and much, much more. This fascinating hour of behind-the-scenes comics history starts right after this ad. Um, So welcome, Stuart Moore, to Classic Comics Cavalcade.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, You you also should welcome my cat Rocco, who just jumped up in my lap and is demanding attention, (laughs) so he can help.
0: Kind of appropriate for the guy who writes Captain Ginger.
1: Oh, he's one of the inspirations, yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a crazy comic. I was just rereading it uh, just this morning, and man, there is nothing quite like that book on the stands.
1: Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, um, we're, uh, we're working on the second volume now, the second season, and uh, it's going to be even even crazier, I think. Cats in space. Cats in space. Yeah, yeah what I discovered when I started working on this is um, there, are, um, there are a million like images of cats in space. There's a lot of artwork of them, but very few stories. And actually, since we did Captain Ginger, a few more of them have appeared in comics form, I've noticed. Uh, but I was just, it, it's
0: kind of this wacky, kind of almost over-the-top Star Trek parody. <laughs> but it's also it also works kind of as, as an interesting mystery, where we don't quite know why the cats are in charge of the spaceship. There seems to be some great history behind it. Uh, so that's really what hooked me, especially at the end of the first volume.
1: Oh, good. Yeah. You um you will learn a little more about that. I mean, I think it's uh, from the text page and and some of the stuff in the stories, you can you can infer that, well, you know that the humans died out and someone was experimenting um, on, a, on animal intelligence. And that's the broad strokes of it. But yeah, there's more, um, there's more detail and there's more, there's more to it than that. And uh, some of it has to do with the, uh, the other intelligent species that you can tell from the end of Volume 1 they're about to make contact with.
0: Yeah, a little bit of the nemesis for the kitties.
1: (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) It remains to be seen.
0: (laughs) Well, you seem to be enjoying creating these uh, fun, complicated worlds for Ahoy Comics. Bronze Age Boogie is its own unique thing.
1: Yeah, Bronze Age Boogie. uh, 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 Ahoy definitely gives me the room to do this, which is is just a a great thing. Uh, Bronze Age Boogie, um, yeah, that's sort of a, I've described it, other other places as kind of a love letter to uh, a lot of the pop culture I, uh, from uh, from my my teenage years. Not just um, not just in comics, but also movies and TV. Um, it's 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 a lot of uh, it's a lot of stuff thrown in the blender, and hopefully, uh, um, hopefully, it, it's a the result is an interesting story with char- with characters that people can care about.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. it, it, it has the characters at the center of it. So the outrageousness almost feels more interesting.
1: Oh, good. <laughs> Phew. <laughs> <That's>...
0: <laughs> it's like what? What? What are we going to get out of this? Uh, I mean, you have the barbarian girl with her dad with this really odd mystery around how she kind of understands the future and talks in modern slang.
1: Yeah, yeah. A lot of that is just because of her friend um, Sniffer, the the little ape, who's who's a time traveler. Um, but yeah, I. Uh, I kind of stumbled on Britta. Like, she was a much more minor character in the original concept, and I realized no one had ever done a story about a a teenage barbarian, um, like, kick-ass swords girl, um, as far as I can tell, like the daughter of the king, and uh, that, she just kind of took over. She just kind of became more and more important as the whole thing went along.
0: And she is just a really compelling character because she seems to understand a lot, but she's also blown away by everything that happens to her. Um, I like how she and Linda, Linda's amazing afro, uh, became become such good friends by the end. Uh, it's got a lot going on in that story.
1: Oh, that's good. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I like writing teenagers. I mean, I, I, uh, one of the things I did a few years ago was I wrote a series of middle grade novels uh, in collaboration with Stan Lee called The Zodiac Legacy. And that was a lot of fun um and teenagers are great to write because they're um all the emotions are new to them like everything's very raw everything's very close to the surface um and you can really sort of you, you can really feel the drama a little more um mm-hmm. than sometimes you can with adults i find
0: And the art on the book is just wonderful i mean it just really brings the story to life uh i especially love the way the martians are drawn
1: Yes. Yes. I love the Martians too. Um, Alberto is a guy I've worked with before and he, he does a lot of, um, different kinds of projects for different people. He's worked with, uh, writer Josh Dysart a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. they did a wonderful book called, um, Good Night Paradise for TKO. Um, and he's also worked with, uh, on Karen Berger's new line a bit, but, um, but I've, I've known Alberto for a while and I know he likes to draw really extreme, crazy stuff. <laughs> and also, one of, the, one of the first pieces, one of the first things I ever saw by him was a European graphic novel. I believe it was called Starburst um, that had a character with just a, a main character with a giant afro. So I knew he was very into the period. And I knew, um, I knew if I just sort of let him loose on this subject matter, he could, uh, he, he'd just run wild with it. And I think he did. Must be a lot of fun writing a series like this. Uh, it, it is, and you know something else I did with this project that is unusual for me is we, we wrote this um, we wrote this book plot first um, in the old Stan Lee method, uh, and initially I started that partly for time reasons, but it was also an experiment in doing a um, uh, doing a project that's an homage to the '70s in a style that was used a lot at Marvel at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it works because um, Alberto is Alberto's just a great storyteller. Um, so he was able to t- take my uh, my uh, my vague meanderings <laughs> and turn them into really compelling action scenes. In particular,
0: he's also a martial
1: arts teacher, which helps.
0: What do you think you get out of? What do you think the result is from the Marvel style? That's different from doing a full script. You get a lot more like spontaneity
1: yeah uh, i'm I'm nervous about doing it in general partly because I guess I'm a control freak um but i also i I also tend to write stories a lot i I tend to write dialogue based stories quite a bit sometimes a few lines of dialogue will lead me through an entire scene um, mm-hmm. and that's harder to do this way although as um I think it's Fabian ECazor who always says to me when I say that he says you know you can put dialogue in the plot <laughs> and he's <laughs> right, you can. Um but uh what you get with the the old what used to be called the marble method is um you get to write the dialogue while looking at the um looking at the artwork. So first of all you can you can match it better. You can match it better to the exact expressions and body language that the artist has given you. But I also find it uh it opens up circuits in my brain that don't work in a different way. Anyway, um, because I don't have to worry about anything else while I'm writing the dialogue. I don't have to worry about the plotting. I don't have to worry about what it's going to look like. I don't have to even picture it in my mind. All I'm concentrating on is what the characters are saying. Um, so that that in a way, that's interesting. Like that that I think gave it. I think maybe gives this book a little more bounce than some of the stuff I've written. Like a little more. A, a little more of a kinetic feel. I don't know. It, it feels that way to me anyway.
0: I think kinetic's a good word for it. And I, a lot of that comes from the art because it's just so full of life. But also uh, the story just kind of pops in some ways.
1: Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
0: You're obviously also a big fan of the 70s stuff. I read an interview where you mentioned like your first true graphic novel was uh, Don McGregor's Detectives, Inc., which means you were probably reading his uh, uh, uh Sorry, Kill Raven and War of the Worlds books. Um, this feels like a little bit of a modern day uh, update of that, str- all the way through to the long text pages you include inside the stories.
1: Yeah, the text pages. I, I, I'm, uh, I've, I've had second thoughts about those. I'm not sure if I'm going to bring them back in the second season um, because I'm afraid they may have stopped some readers cold. But that's yeah. exactly what it was. It was, um, it was an homage to that. Um, McGregor used to use those. Uh, Steve Gerber used them sometimes too. And they were very useful to me in this story um, because they uh, the the plot wound up being fairly complicated, and that let me sort of uh, give a that that gave me a a bit of extra space for like Sniffer to just describe 1975 to Britta, or um, uh, the villain who shows up um, to explain his whole past to uh, to Jackson Lee in chapter or five. Um, So it was very, it it was helpful for that um, because I, I, because part of the game I was playing was to just make the plot as uh, sort of spaghetti strand tangled as I could and Uh try and have it make sense. Um, So yeah, it it was helpful with that, but it also let me um, sort of indulge the prose writer in me, which is always fun.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting uh, dichotomy, I guess, because when you write the prose fiction, it's it's all part of the process to include the text in there right and allow the reader to imagine things in comics you just don't have that space because you have to write with economy um sometimes it can be hard to convey those ideas
1: yeah exactly you you never have enough space in um in comics and uh and i mean you mentioned don mcgregor um he said he was an interesting writer because what he would try to do in a lot of his 70s work and you you've studied this you're familiar with it but he would almost write stories in the margins. I found like there'd be um, there'd be captions that suggested entire actions that would happen between the panels. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a tricky game, and I'm not sure he always pulled it off. Um, like sometimes it can just sort of slow slow the reader down in a way I didn't want to do. Um, but and it's it's definitely not a very modern style. Um, but uh, but it's interesting. It was it was very ambitious. He was he was definitely trying things.
0: Yeah, I always appreciated that ambition, even if if in some cases it was a noble failure. I think uh, in the Black Panther series, especially, I think it was more successful than unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. But just to have someone who's who played with expanding the vocabulary of comics, um, it's just exciting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And even
0: as a kid, I picked up on the fact he was just trying to do something different. Um, And (laughs) in fact, it's kind of mind blowing in a way.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, a lot of that laid the groundwork for um, work done by Alan Moore and Grant Morrison and people like that later on.
0: Right. Oh, many of whom you got to work with over your career, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. Not Alan. Never worked with him. Um, But uh, but yeah, when I was an editor, I worked with Grant. I worked with I worked with a lot of that wave of writers.
0: So how did you get involved with uh, so you were one of the founding editors of Vertigo, but you were actually at uh, D.C. before that? How would you end up getting into comics in the first place?
1: (laughs) I haven't told this story for a while, but uh, I got got into comics by answering an ad. Um, I was a book editor at St. Martin's Press, and uh, DC was expanding the editorial group reporting to Karen Berger, which eventually became Vertigo, Um, and they placed an ad in Publishers Weekly. And at the time, Publishers Weekly was a weekly magazine with a three-week lag on ad placement, um so it was it was a very slow way to recruit people um and mm. most book publishers didn't bother with it um but dc wasn't in a hurry um and they placed an ad and it was in the, the only, actually the only time in my life i've ever read an ad and just thought that's me <laughs> they, they just <laughs> described me in here they wanted a certain amount of experience they wanted someone with um experience working with uh, they wanted to bring in writers from outside comics um, who'd worked in genre fiction, that sort of thing, and I had, I had a certain amount of contacts and experience with with that. Um, so, yeah, I just, uh, I, I just had an interview, and and uh, Karen hired me, um, and that was about, that was about two two and a half years before we started the Vertigo imprint. But from the beginning, I was working on books like Swamp Thing and Hellblazer that folded into into Vertigo once it started.
0: Was there a feeling early on that she was creating her own kind of sub imprint inside DC even before Vertigo?
1: Yeah. always had a very
0: unique feel to them.
1: We called it the burger books or just the the weird books. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But but, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we already had uh, Sandman, um, Hillblazer, Swamp Thing had been around, but that was the first one, obviously. Um, And Shade the Changing Man. Uh, animal man and doom patrol so there was already a little subgroup like of, of those books and they were a little bit they were a little bit fragmented at the beginning some of them were had the mature readers label some of them didn't um but they were all handled out of that editorial group and it was a natural to kind of spin them off and add um add more projects many of which a- a including a-, a much expanded roster of mini series and limited series and special projects which vertigo had from the beginning
0: vertigo was part of this incredible wave in 1993 of new comics companies yeah Uh, as part of working on my book i discovered there were something like 28 new publishing companies or imprints that were created at that time and literally vertigo was about the only one that survived (laughs) Um, what do you think made vertigo stand out
1: well it uh, yeah i i remember what you're talking about i think uh, d c launched milestone the month before or something right they they were right in succession um i i think uh vertigo uh, well vertigo had one gr- big advantage which was it launched with six titles that already had a following and were already underway so it the, the um there were it, it, in a way it was in a way it was a risk but in a way it was less of a risk than um starting something up whole wholly from scratch mm-hmm. um it uh also sandman was really starting to hit at the time like it, it 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 was really it was really reaching its height and getting a lot of attention um and we had the the first death mini series was one of the first vertigo titles as well. Um, so that was, you know, all that helped. Um, I would say in a way, uh, what was going on in 1993 at the time, and again, you've, you've done research on this, I know, um, was the, uh, sort of the crest of the speculator boom. It might've even been on the way down a little bit, but right. stores were still ordering like astronomical numbers of books that couldn't really sell through those numbers um the milestone numbers were insane and i like the milestone books but uh no one could have sold as many copies as were ordered of those titles um so in a way vertigo was a little bit of the slow and steady entry in the race where the books were ordered the books were ordered very high at the beginning and tailed off um a bit like fairly quickly um, but they were never because they weren't superhero titles they weren't uh they weren't ordered in the insane numbers that uh, that some of the other stuff was around that time. I mean, you also had, um, in addition to all the stuff that was launched, you had um, you had th- you had um, lines like Valiant that had been around for a few years and was still sort of uh, still sort of at it, near at or near its height, like in terms of sales. There was there was a lot of weird activity around that time.
0: Yeah, their first the first issue of Turok sold something like one point seven five million copies for, ah, yeah. for, for, for uh, Valiant. I mean, uh, yeah, which is just completely insane. And um, as you
1: say, when you say sold, those were ordered by stores, and a lot of them probably never were sold to uh, to consumers. And when I say that, I don't mean any slam against Valiant or Turok or the people who worked on it. Um, it's just that those the stores were all stores were speculating at the time as well and thinking they'd be able to mark these up down the line which didn't wind up happening
0: yeah and that's the story of a lot of the big books of the early 90s from x-force to x-men to um to the valiant books sure. to the early image books Just everyone thought they were going to make a crazy amount of money and for a short time they were because it was all built on the speculator boom and um the uniqueness of the direct sales market too
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah uh, so you were inside the bubble there. Uh, <laughs> did you feel like uh, things were were a bubble, or did you feel like they were? Um, you, you felt like this could be a real thing, like that that comics could suddenly be breaking through, be kind of part of our pop culture life.
1: Well, both. I mean, I, I think uh, I, I think there was a strong sense that comics were breaking through and becoming part of our pop culture life. That didn't mean they could sustain sales of two million or four million copies of an issue. Um, It, uh, even now, I mean, comics are much more part of the uh, cultural conversation than ever before, Um, but the numbers are never going to get back up to what they were in the early 90s because they just weren't real. Um, So, yeah, I mean, in a way, being at DC, DC was never, um, DC never chased the speculator market or gigantic sales the way a lot of other companies did. So, in a way, it was like, we, we we, all, we were, we were a little bit insulated from the highs and lows of that. Like management didn't expect us to sell enormous numbers of copies. At the same time, it was always sometimes it was a little bit frustrating. Like you would watch. Uh, I had a friend whose um, job at Marvel, a, a big part of his job, was coming up with new ideas for hollow foil covers, um, and uh, <laughs> that obviously wasn't all of his job, and it wasn't it wasn't a sustainable. Um, it wasn't a sustainable thing to do, like f- forever. But uh, but sometimes you looked at it and you thought, why don't we do more of that? That that, that looks sort of fun.
0: <laughs> I actually collect those now, because they're so easy to find, so cheap. But uh, yeah, nice. there, was, there was some crazy stuff they put out. I love the the especially the uh, like the stuff on Marble twenty ninety nine with the like uh, metallic sheen to it. it. It's kind of amazingly fun
1: yeah yeah it was probably a, um they, they probably did a few too many of those on iron man as well Oh because yeah. <laughs> it's it's such a natural
0: there's a space of like five issues of fantastic four where like three were some sort of enhanced cover um which is wacky did you got to work at vertigo with some of the best writers in comics um that must have been a treat to work with people like neil gaiman grant morrison garth ennis warren ellis
1: yeah, yeah. It, and it's, you know, Garth is still a good friend of mine. Um, Grant, I uh, I see once every two years and it's like we just pick up a conversation as if <laughs> as if it was yesterday. Um, Neil, I only worked with briefly on the Children's Crusade crossover, but that was wild. Um, he's just an idea machine. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, it was all it was all it was quite a time. Like it was a uh, it, it, it was a lot like Ahoy in one way, which was that. The management just gave us all the tools we needed um, and didn't really interfere too much. I mean, there were questions of there were always questions of how far we were pushing the envelope in terms of acceptable content um, back then. Uh, But aside from that, um, we were uh, we were pretty much left alone as an imprint to uh, to make the books as good as they could be
0: and you know when you when i talk to my fellow fans about the 90s the comments always yeah all the comics sucked except for the vertigo line
1: <laughs> well you know the vertigo line was it was immensely influential in terms of storytelling style and also just the the creative people involved i mean i was i was at uh i went to marvel nights for a little while in the early 2000s and uh by the time i got there joe Quesada and uh jimmy Pomiati had started it up with him um had recruited a lot of the people we worked with at, uh, at Vertigo, um, Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon were doing the Punisher. Um, there were, uh, Grant Morrison was doing a lot of stuff. Like it was, it was, um, you know, in, in a way it was sort of a, there was a creative flowering that came out of that stuff that sort of diffused out into the mainstream, um, over the, over the next decade or so.
0: I got to ask why you thought it was wild working with Gaiman. What was about, what about him was wild?
1: <laughs> um, uh, oh, I, I don't know I don't know if I meant anything really by that. I, uh, <laughs> he Just was creativity, he, or uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know, we uh, we that was an odd project because we um we talked about it and I talked about it with him and we wanted to do we wanted to do the Vertigo equivalent of a big company crossover sort of. Mm-hmm. And in the end, I'm not sure if it satisfied any of us completely um, because the Vertigo books weren't really constructed that way. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, he was, uh, he was wonderful to work with. And he and, um, he and Chris Bacello in particular did the first bookend book. And that's just a gorgeous book that really came out well. I'm very proud of that. It's one of the most fun surprises of the nineties was reading that one. Oh yeah. Uh,
0: you, uh, what, so I gotta ask uh, at least two of the Vertigo projects that I know you were intimately involved with. One was Invisibles. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah um the uh the invisibles was uh i i i really liked working on that and it was funny i didn't know grant that well before we started it and he <laughs> he kind of sent it to me because his other two editors had left <laughs> and he said well i guess you get this you know and Congrats, uh, but what was really fun about it for me at the beginning um was uh it was designed at the beginning to have rotating artists and uh that just gave me an opportunity to work with a lot of people and i suggested a few people i brought phil jimenez into that orbit i think i brought in uh tommy lee edwards um there there were a few people like that um and uh the the story was so intricate and fun and grants into a lot of the same stuff i am so i i I always, always kind of related to it but i never wanted to edit the scripts very much because Sometimes a stray line of dialogue would reappear two years later and and, and turn out to be vitally important, and right. I knew just constructing it that way, um, so uh, so I never wanted to mess with it too much. But uh, but yeah, that was a uh, that was a wild book. Vertigo had very high hopes for it. It was sort of intended as the new flagship title because we knew Sandman was going to end, um, and it never was that. Like it 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 wound up being more of a refined taste i think um because it never sold in the numbers they wanted it to but it always did well enough to keep going so
0: it's just a very challenging book
1: yeah in it a way is. that
0: like it's. even doom patrol wasn't because it, it was just so particular to his vision and so complex in the approach
1: mm-hmm. yeah i agree I agree
0: it's a great book but not necessarily the e- most easily accessible um,
1: i myself have to go back to the uh, the final volume sometime I, w- I was gone from dc by that time and uh okay I need to reread it because I have to admit, I got a little bit lost um, toward the end. Uh,
0: And then another book you're well known for uh, was kind of the flip side of it in a way is Preacher. Yeah. Yeah. um, Definitely a more straightforward book in many ways, but also very kind of metaphysically interesting.
1: Yeah, that's one um, that actually wound up being Vertigo's biggest um, title after um, once Sandman was over. Um and I always thought that the, the key to um the way Garth and the late Steve Dillon worked together was um they were <laughs> they were the closest um they were the closest team I've ever seen to a uh to working with a single cartoonist. They just they just knew oh. they just knew what each other wanted. Um they were oh. so in sync. And the result, Steve's storytelling was so clear and direct that the result I always thought was um just incredibly fun and easy to read. Like, like it wasn't like, it, there was a lot of, um, there's not as much of this now, but, um, there was a lot of, uh, sort of storytelling experimentation going on at the time. And, um, and that's not what this was like. And, and I thought that was the key to, um, the success of a lot of their work. And I worked with them on Hellblazer before preacher as well. Um, they just sort of segued from Hellblazer over to the new book and, uh, and I, I, th- I think a lot of the key to it was, yes, it was challenging in terms of the storytelling uh, or in terms of the subject matter. And it, it pushed a lot of bounds in terms of what comics were allowed to do at the time. But reading it was just a, a just an easy, fun, like flow experience. Like it was it, it, it was it was like falling downstairs after I left. That was the book I always just picked up first and wanted to read.
0: The characters were so well constructed too. They just all seem to have a life to them that you don't always see in comics.
1: Yeah, Garth's very good at that. like he's got a real uh, he's got a real feel for it and uh, and again he and Steve they you know, they had worked together quite a lot by that by the time they started preacher. So uh, it didn't take too long for them to get into a rhythm on the book.
0: Are there any books from your Vertigo time that you kind of which wish were better known?
1: Um I, uh, yeah, um, let me think. I did a, uh, when I was doing the Helix imprint, I had a book called Vermilion that um, I thought was very, that was also very challenging. It's written by a uh, science fiction writer, the late Lucius Shepard. Um, and uh, it had art by Al Davison on the first storyline. And there's a single issue drawn by John Tottleman. That's mm-hmm. one of the most beautiful things I've ever edited. Like it, it's, it's almost like a little poem. Um, it really I'm really proud of that. I'm sure there are others there. There are others. Um, the Jonah Hex books got a lot of attention at the time, sometimes for the wrong reasons. But uh, yeah. but um, but those um, those came out really well. And those were, that was also a very, very smoothly functioning team. Joe Lansdale and Tim Truman and Sam Glansman, the anchor as well. Um, they were all just exactly in sync and knew what they wanted to do
0: there was a real feeling that they had a, tr- a clear vision for what they wanted those stories to be. And this was a like a dream project for, a co- for those guys that this is yeah. just something that they had been working on over time. Um, and in fact, if there's one thing from the Vertigo books of that era just occurred to me and maybe the Watchmen since Watchmen's so big right now, uh, it feel like HBO shows, which you know, have this larger, la- larger amount of planning before they come on the air. So there's just a feeling of being part of a shared universe. Oh, uh,
1: that's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you're talking about, you, you mean the, uh, are you talking about the Vertigo books that actually were part of the shared universe? Yeah,
0: sorry. I'm, I mean, like there was always a sense that with, with the best Vertigo books that they were a full universe in themselves and that, oh, that right. universe was well thought through. Sorry, mm-hmm. I didn't complete my thought. Uh, and that, you know, there was a level of attention p- uh, paid to detail that kind of differentiated the uh, Vertigo books. Maybe it's this novelistic approach as opposed to a comic book type approach, classic comic yeah, book
1: type approach. I guess a lot of them were designed to. A lot of them were designed to run for quite a while, um, and the uh, because the creators um, owned them, um, they did put a lot of they did put a lot of work into that. Some of it, I think, um, some some of it was there from the start and some of it developed as it went along I think Garth's initial ideas for preacher were fairly simple and he developed the whole bloodline of Christ over the first year um, but uh, but yeah that was uh, that that was definitely in there and the fact that um, I mean some of the books not all the books lasted obviously but the fact that most of them did and at the time um, comics at DC weren't Well, comic sales didn't drop quite as quickly as they did in the uh, in the as they do in more recent times. Um, So even if a book didn't last past 12 or 18 issues, they'd probably get at least that many. Um, Right. And 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 the creators went into it knowing that and kind of, I think, added added the texture to the added texture, knowing they'd be able to at least play it, play it out for that long.
0: How much do the editors have input into that? How much did you work as like developmental editors to really help them think through their ideas? That creators, I mean.
1: Um. Well, it was different on every project, obviously. Okay. Um, but the uh, for the most part, I think uh, I, I would say most of the creators the creators did most of the work. <laughs> okay. um, I would uh, I would push people to uh, bring something in sooner or later, or Um, or I would give them general story advice, but I mean, again, I was trained as a book editor and, um, book editors tend, there are exceptions in both directions on this, obviously, but, uh, book editors tend to be a bit less, um, a bit less conceptually involved, a bit less, um, (laughs) intrusive Mm -hmm. be the, uh, the, the negative way to look at it. Um, And because these were creator-owned projects, um, we, uh, we we stayed out of the way a little more. Um, it was a little different with something like Swamp Thing or Hellblazer, where I had to bring in a writer on an existing existing character um, and just make sure make sure it all worked with what had gone before.
0: I was just reading an interview with Rachel Pollack about her taking over Swamp Thing. It sounds like um, um. she'd been lobbying for that <laughs> series for a <laughs> while, but it was. Um interesting challenge for her to to keep it going
1: you're talking about doom patrol right Oh,
0: excuse yeah. me doom patrol yeah sure. so Thing's um, a whole different set of problems
1: yes i i may be telling stories here but i, I think she and tom kind of cooked up that lobbying story uh a little bit okay. like the tom pyre the editor who's now editor-in-chief of ahoy um but uh i i introduced them um if i remember right i knew rachel a little bit from science fiction circles and uh and they started. They started having her. They knew she was going to take over the book, but they started having her write letters to the editor before that. Okay. Um, they, hey, let me take over Doom Patrol. Um, but I believe <laughs> it was sense. more of a joke than anything else. I, I think. Okay. As with um, as again, as with the Ahoy titles, um, we had we had some leisure there at Vertigo to plan fairly far ahead. Um, that doesn't mean books didn't ship late, which <laughs> they did, um, but. Uh, but we, um, we, uh, there were things like this that we, especially when we had a new creative team coming on, we tried to plan that as far ahead as possible, just to make sure we could get all the kinks out before publication time.
0: Yeah, uh, level of professionalism there that's not always in the rest of the industry.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't even blame editors for that. Um, mandates change very quickly at companies um, these days. More than was true back then.
0: Well, even even in the '90s, right, everything was a little more. It was quite a bit more chaotic. Um, the Helix line—you mentioned it briefly. I thought that was a, one of my favorite lost treasures of the decade.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, it was an ambitious thing. Uh, DC had wanted a science fiction line. Paul Levitz, in particular, the publisher—I give him a lot of credit. He wanted that. Um, I uh, I put something together, and because of the various. Availabilities of various characters and things, it was all creator owned. Um, and that made it a little difficult. Of, that made it a little bit of a hard sell, um, especially since we launched it right about the time when the market contracted. Um, yeah. So, you know, it was a. I, I'm very proud of a lot of those books. Some of them were misfires, that always happens. Um, but uh, it was not. I remember a marketing person saying, um, If saying if I'd been saying at the time of launch, um, I would have waited until the market like rebounds a little bit. And I didn't say this to him, but I kind of thought, I don't think the market is going to rebound (laughs) anytime soon. Um, And I was sort of right. Um, So, yeah, we did the best we could with it. I think there were a lot of good books in there. Um, In the end, it was just a it was a very challenging time to uh, especially after those 37. imprints and companies had launched the year before or however many you mentioned
0: yeah but uh you had some great books that came out through that i love the moorcox multiverse book and of course that your big winner was transmat
1: yeah yeah transmat was the one that caught on um i was just listening to a podcast about that yesterday um it uh yeah that and that was another one where Warren and Derek had only worked together for a little while, like a couple of times before, but they really wanted to do a book together. And I think in particular the first year, they're just, they're both firing on all cylinders. You can really see it.
0: There's just so much passion on every page and spider just really pops.
1: Yeah. Concepts too, especially in the first year, there's just a lot of futuristic stuff thrown at you all the time. They It was, I, I was very proud of that book.
0: Uh, and so, uh, do you look back on your time at Marvel Knights fondly? I know it was kind of a mixed time in a way.
1: It was very chaotic. Um, um, it was it was great. I mean, especially okay. the first year. Like we could, uh, we were sort of tasked with, um, I don't want to say turning the company around, but um, we were the new, um, we were sort of the new, uh, the new team in there um, doing all this. And at the beginning, yeah, I mean, that was like I said, Joe Casada um, had been. He'd been running Marvel Knights, and he, he immediately helped bring in uh, Grant to, to revamp X-Men. And uh, over at Marvel Knights, we did, we'd re, we, we did a lot of... We, we had Garth doing Punisher. We, had, um, we relaunched Captain America. It was, um, it was wild. Um, the, the mixed part of it for me was, by that time, I was really realizing that what I wanted to do was write. Um, and I, uh, I was starting to do some indie stuff, which I... It was an unusual job, because I had the freedom to do that. Um, and that doesn't usually happen when you're editing books at Marvel and DC. So for me, I just uh, I, I just started stretching my muscles, and eventually, I just wanted to go. I wanted to go off on my own and see what I could do.
0: Yeah, I was looking. I didn't find any, uh, very few freelance credits for you before about 2000.
1: Yeah, that's about right. Um, the, uh, I had a, uh, I think I had a Star Trek story from Wildstorm in an anthology, and then I started working with. Uh, small company called Penny Farthing Press. And the first project I did for them was a space opera called Zendra. It was a lot of fun.
0: So before we get to that, I got to ask, since you know my love for Steve Gerber, uh, you work with Gerber on the 2002 Howard the Duck Max series. Yes. Um, how was it working with him? And um, do you feel like that series turned out the way you and he hoped it would?
1: Um, <clears throat> it was great working with him. And uh, he was... Uh, he was... Uh, he was very sort of happy and grateful to return to the character, um, and I re- what I liked about it most was that uh, to me it really is an ending for Howard the Duck in a way because mm-hmm. at the without giving any specific spoilers in the final issue which I think is wonderful um, Howard actually gains a little bit of peace about the decisions he's made in his life um, and that's something the character never really had and I found that I found that really touching and I never really talked with Steve about it um I don't think I ever met him in person I may have shaken his hand once at a convention um but uh but I I was kind of I kind of hope that sort of mirrored his own life a little bit um that he he um the in terms of how the series came out um I, again i think there's um i think there's some wonderful stuff in there and i think it i think it mostly worked i wish we hadn't had to have a fill-in art job in the middle um even though glenn fabry did a beautiful job with it because um steve and phil winslade were really clicking and phil was just putting so much into it um it's no slight on glenn whose covers were amazing <laughs> yeah. um but uh um but steve and phil were really in a in a groove and i i wish we hadn't had to interrupt that we also had the we we were also sort of like working with the strange conceit that howard turns into different animals throughout the whole thing right that was partly to avoid the um the problem with the redesign of the character which had been um legally mandated um and in the end um Phil kind of proved he could just draw the new version and it worked really well. Um, and that's pretty much how Howard appears in the last issue and a half. Um, so it might not have been necessary. Um, Bill Jemis, the publisher was very into the whole idea of the the changing animals. And eventually we were going to, we were going to try and make a little more of a, of a PR thing out of it. And just, you know, the way things fall that that didn't wind up happening. Um, I think it worked on a character level. I think Steve made it work. Um, but I'm 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 not sure if people clicked onto the series as much because Howard just wasn't there like physically um for a lot of it. So right. I think that might have been a that might have been a slight drawback. I don't think it hurt the story in the end, but it may have hurt the whole thing commercially a little bit. It's funny you worked
0: on it because it really is one of the most vertigo-esque uh, Marvel comics ever. Yeah. Very metaphysical, it's very abstract, it's um pretty bold sexually um it just felt it it feels so much more contemporary than even a lot of the marvel books from that time
1: Mm -hmm.
0: actually aside from the other books you edited like um like the morrison work or or daredevil was the other one that that feels very still feels very contemporary
1: well daredevil yeah daredevil had a lot of uh um it had rotating writers until um under my tenure um brian bendis and alex malev took it over um and that uh, yeah I, I i really loved working on that that run as well that was a lot of fun
0: but you're anxious to move on and write your own work so how'd you end up getting connected for, with penny farthing press and what's your favorite some of your favorite works that you put out through them
1: i cannot remember how i got connected with them um, i did a uh, I did a graphic novel called uh Para that i'm still fairly proud of it's sort of a paranormal science fiction story um, about a particle accelerator that's had a mysterious disaster and uh, the protagonist is trying to find out what happened. Um, And it was actually, um, my father was a nuclear physicist who worked on accelerators and that was a, that was a chance to sort of, it was a little homage to him. And also um, I've always sort of been fascinated with that, with that sort of, that arm of nuclear physics, even though I can't even begin to understand it myself. I'm, I'm from the humanities side of the family. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so that was good. Uh, I did a, I did a very ambitious book with them called, uh, Shadrach stone. That was sort of about, um, it was a surreal piece about conspiracy theories. And, uh, that didn't, that never really caught on, but, uh, it had, uh, it had some pretty cool art by John Proctor and, uh, I'm still proud of that. So yeah, they were great to work with. Um, they've uh, they're still around in a small way. I think they still publish a few things. Um, they're a they're a nice little operation out of Houston.
0: They put out some pretty interesting work at the time um, by a number of prominent comics creators. Um, so they they were, uh, but of course the market really wasn't ready for that either. Um, you ever think about putting those books out again, either in uh, like? Through comixology or in graphic novel because it feels like that's the kind of stuff that would be uh, a lot more, be a lot better audience for them at
1: this point. It's it's possible. I think they still hold the rights to a lot of it, even though I'm the owner. Um, But they've, some of it is still available on comixology, but I haven't actually checked recently. Um, To be honest, I I tend to, (laughs) this is just uh, temperamentally, I, I tend to be always thinking about the next thing. So I probably don't take, care of my backlist as well as i should um, Okay. so um but that's a that, that is an interesting idea i do have some projects i should be thinking about in that in that way
0: but that yeah and that's kind of like work too you always want to be thinking looking forward not looking yeah. back um i think that's the way you stay creative when you're in your 40s and 50s too is by continually thinking about the next thing i hope so <laughs> otherwise you just continue you're kind of living on the glories of your past which is interesting to hear about but um, you're certainly keeping yourself busy these days.
1: I am. And I feel very, um, very fortunate that people, um, that people still want to work with me. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Ahoy, uh, Ahoy was a situation that just came up kind of all at once. Because uh, um, do you want to get on to that now? Is that uh, Sure, that sounds great. Okay. Um, the, uh, I, I just got a call from Tom Pyre one day saying, hey, we're going to do this comic company. Um, and I think initially he asked me if I wanted to edit his book, The Wrong Earth. Um, and I, it kind of evolved into something else where I, uh, I, I wound up being a general consultant. Um, and I also showed them Captain Ginger, which I had been working on already. June and I had a seven page sample sequence, um, of it and I had written the first script. Um, and, uh, it fit in exactly with what they wanted to do. Um, and then we had, uh, we had, a, uh, we had a guy working with us doing um, publishing operations named Sven Larsen, who's an old friend of mine. Uh, and he and I went uh, to, we, we drove down to Baltimore and presented the line to Diamond, the distributor. Um, and they accepted it on the spot. It was really nice. They were very complimentary. Um, and then two days later, he called me and said, "Well, I'm, I'm taking a job as a vice president at Marvel, <laughs> so, uh, where he had worked before. Um, so that left a gap in the Ahoy structure. Which I sort of stepped up to and started uh, and and took a larger role running publishing operations. It's all on a freelance level. I have still work with other people as well, um, but Ahoy takes up a lot of my time, and um, it it really is for me one of the best working experiences I've ever had. I've never felt as trusted by a group of people as I do um, with uh, with Ahoy, and the fact that I can uh, the fact that I can also sort of uh, edit and publish two of my own titles um and that they trust me to do that as well is uh, is just wonderful
0: it just seems like a different sort of company very kind of respectful of creators everyone seems to be having a lot of fun there um it seems to be a lot of intent to add to give people value for their dollar too
1: yeah that was all built in from the beginning that um we uh, we wanted to do the uh, we wanted to do the short prose stories in the back from the very start, um, Ahoy's, uh, uh, PR guy, uh, David Hyde, who used to run, um, used to run DC's, um, PR department, um, has been, uh, he pushed for that a lot too. He thought that was an important thing to set the company apart, um, that it would just give extra value. Um, uh, I, so, yeah, I, I mean, a, a lot of things kind of Came together, and Hart Seeley, who's the publisher, again has given us every tool we need to make the books as good as we can. Um, I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of experience in the Ahoy team. There's a lot of um, there's a there's a lot of pretty good there's a lot of pretty good taste, and between us, we also have a we also have a lot of contacts within the industry, and that's helped as well.
0: I know you're planning your 2020 line of books. Well, that's already been announced. Uh, anything you're especially excited about working on coming up?
1: um i i have pulled myself out of editorial for the most part except on my books so i'm not actively working on um i am working on the second run of bronze age boogie right now and that's a lot of fun and captain ginger as well um but uh uh i would say really keep an eye on the two lead books for the um for the spring is that right i have to to check my schedule uh um which is Billionaire Island by, uh, Mark Russell and Steve Pugh, who were the team that did the Flintstones together at, uh, at, um, D.C. And also, um, uh, Thorne by Mariah McCourt and Sue Lee, um, which is just a great idea. That I actually acquired when I was doing some editing, then I had to pass it along. Um, but, uh, that was, um, that's, that's just basically about, uh, the chosen one who has to uh, save Earth from a, um, From an invasion by demonic hordes but the only survivor of that line is an old lady in her 70s Um, oh what
0: a great idea wow
1: yeah it's it's just and we look for that like tom in particular as editor-in-chief looks for that with the ahoy titles is a concept that just makes you go wow like why hasn't that been done before why hasn't why hasn't that been done more um and uh and that, you know, that uh, Ash and Thorn fit in perfectly to that. And Mariah is a terrific writer. It's all, it's coming together really nicely.
0: That sounds fun. It sounds like you're really enjoying this phase of your career.
1: I am. I am. It, it lets me balance things. And in a way, this is a little weird, but I've done so much editing in the past. Like, and I've had periods since I went freelance where I did, I did some consulting editing for um, Virgin Comics when that was around. And I've done uh, I've edited novels for Marvel as well. Um, but in a way, it's easier for me to shift gears and um, do writing in the morning and then in the afternoon figure out scheduling and work on uh, work with Diamond on the on the Ahoy stuff than it is to do go from writing to editing. Like they're, they're just the muscles are a little too close. Like it, it's just it, it's just harder for me to shift gears. So, yeah, it's it, it, this is a it's a lot of work, <laughs> but it's um, but it's working for me. I'm, I'm enjoying it.
0: I got to mention, I read, as part of prep, I read your Thanos novel. Oh, yes. And I thought it was really fun.
1: I'm very proud of that book. Um, it, uh, I, I, it's, um, they, I, I basically, um, that, that, that came about over the course of a couple of years. Um, they wanted a Thanos novel because the Avengers movies were coming, um, the, the two big ones. Um, I think at one point we had Dan Abnett signed up to write a Thanos novel, and I was going to edit it. Um, and then he just got too busy. Um, I think he might have taken an exclusive at DC for a while. I can't remember. Um, but uh, he couldn't fit it into his schedule. He had to back out. Um, and I just had this idea. I just wanted to strip the character down and see what happened if Mistress Death. And I was going with the older version of Thanos, like the one, um, the sort of original version where he's um, motivated by his obsessive love of death. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than the, uh, in the movies, I thought it was interesting. They kind of took the nineties version where he's kind of interested in universal population control a bit more, um, which is a, another interesting motivation and they made it work, but I was sort of attracted to the more visceral, like just obsessive love of death and, where he's personifying it as this, as this woman he can never have. Um, right. and I thought, what if he, uh, what if he just fails which he always does in the end, of course. Um, and she just, uh, she just exiles him, tells him, "Don't you can't talk to me. I won't be um, until you have, until you proved yourself worthy." And he has no idea even where to start. So what he has to do is wander the universe in different bodies until he can, until he can get there. And um, Tom Brevert gave me an interesting note on that book um, because the outlines circulate through Marvel, and he said he thought it wasn't clear he was worried it wouldn't be clear, this is from the outline, um, what Thanos' motivation was, like what he was really trying to do. And I took that very much to heart because that was sort of built into the concept, like he really doesn't know what he needs to do. Um, All he knows is that he has to be worthy of mistress death. Um, So he kind of embarks on this walkabout around the universe. Um, And in the end, it's it's told in four sections where he's in very different situations in each of them, on different worlds, and uh, I was very proud of the way it came out. I, I I don't always say that about my own work, but that one that one came out just about the way I wanted to, and and a few interesting things suggested themselves for the for the epilogues in particular as I went along.
0: It's just a take on the character that makes sense, but I don't think I've ever seen before.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it was unex. It was an unexpected pleasure. Um, oh, thank you. I recommend it to others. I know you worked on a few other books for, on that line too. Civil War, um, Dark Phoenix. Uh... Dark
1: Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. Dark Phoenix was a challenge. Um, partly because um, the source material is so well loved, um, and uh, but also because um, the source material is very sprawling. It goes. It it spreads over a few years of the X Men, and I had to boil it down and shape it into a novel a bit because it just wasn't designed for that, um, right. and uh, I, I think it that was also a challenge because I wound up having to write it while Ahoy was ramping up to launch. Um, so my attention was a little more distracted than I like it to be when I'm writing a novel. Um, it, it always helps if you can really just clear everything off the desk, um, and, uh, but I think it came together. Uh, my editor on that, Steve Saffel, was very helpful as we went along. But at this point, you're pretty much
0: just concentrating on the comics, um, and allowing that to really be as good as it can be. It sounds like,
1: yeah, I'm a- I'm actually working on a, a middle grade novel of my own. Okay. Um, I've not talked about it with anyone, and I'm not ready to talk plot or anything, but uh, but I'm about halfway through a draft. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm basically doing a comics. I had the um, I've been doing little bits here and there for DC. Um, the graphic novel Batman Nightwalker that I worked on came out um, in October. Um, but I've done a little other stuff for them that's <laughs> that's almost invisible. i've been um I've been Americanizing some um, some manga translations for them, and I did a little proof of concept thing for them that was only intended for internal use recently. Okay. Um, so I keep in touch with them and I do work with them as well. Um, but yeah, most of uh, most of my time is um is spent on ahoy and uh, this um, this novel that I'm working on for myself right now. It hasn't been sold. That sounds like you're really enjoying where you are now. I am. I am. Uh, Sometimes I wish there were more hours in a day, you know, (laughs) but but yeah, that's a good problem to have.
0: Gee, I can't relate to that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anything else you want to mention or plug? Um, No, I mean, we didn't really talk about Bronze Age Boogie too much. The the trade paperback uh, is just out. And uh, that, again, is a it's kind of a it is kind of an homage to uh to all this sorts of pop culture from the um from the 70s but i wanted to make it i really wanted to give it the feel of a modern comic like i wanted it to have that um so it's more it's more it's more an excavation of like trappings and character types that were used back then but hopefully told in a modern manner and uh and alberto is a big help with that because his work is just sort of it's it's just sort of singular like it just it it doesn't look like we're trying to homage anything in particular. It's just, it's just him. Um,
0: yeah, that's that's the thing too. Is it? It may uh, kind of homage in concept, but it definitely feels like a modern book, both in storytelling approach and in the art style.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, it just has a feel of um, just, I don't know, like a like a good modern movie that's got this retro feel to it. Oh, that's great. elements.
1: Yes, that's exactly what we we're trying for. Yeah. Cause like
0: the design of the aliens is just um just cool and just very large and very intricate um the scenes of the alien invasion like on the spaceship are just really uh, just big it just feels yeah, very it's his, got an epic
1: feel to it i love his martians to me they look very um they look very uh, they look metallic but organic at the same time like they look very um they look very sort of kinetic and dangerous to me like they look like they could really move fast and hurt you um and that's uh yeah and that's not a particular again that's not that's not particularly the way they looked in in kill raven for instance like it's it's just its own thing so yeah that's uh yeah and that's where it's great to i love that kind of collaboration and uh both of my both on captain ginger and bronze age boogie the artists are my co-owners of the property and they are they're as invested in it as i am and uh and I, i hope that shows i think it does
0: yeah, you can see the passion on every page. It it, it just uh, brings the reader along happily.
1: Well, I should mention that um, Captain Ginger returns in February, and we're um, we're hard at work on that. And that's going to be um, that's going to get a little uh, it's going to get a little darker <laughs> actually for a okay. while. Like some very bad things are going to happen, um, and uh, and then hopefully some good things after that.
0: Uh, well i mean you can't have good heroic characters who don't go through a lot of hell in their lives.
1: that's how yeah that's a. Uh, I i think joss whedon said something about that once about just uh you have to love your characters and then just uh um just do the most terrible things to them possible <laughs> <laughs> or
0: maybe that was george rr R. martin i'm not sure whoever it's definitely <laughs> true well thank you this has been a lot of fun
1: thank you this is great Yeah. Oh, thank you.